Good morning. Please turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans 8, verse 31. Romans 8, verse 31. We now come to one of those great texts in the Bible. There are a few passages that carry such confidence, encouragement, and hope as Romans 8, verse 31 to 39. Today we'll focus our time on verse 31 to 34, and Pastor Sam will conclude our series next week. Before we turn to God's word, let's come to our Father in prayer. Let's pray. Dear gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for this fount of living water that is able to satisfy the most dry and weary soul. Lord, for those who are suffering, we pray that you will comfort us with your word. For those who remain in their sin, we ask that you will break the stony ground of their hearts and cause them to see the immeasurable worth of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you will help our church to treasure Christ above every earthly pleasure. Lord, show us the glory of your Son and make us into the people you've called us to be. Lord, we ask this and much more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Romans 8, verse 31 to 34. Hear now the precious words of our Savior. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Praise God for the gift of his word. The year was 1521. It had only been four years since Martin Luther had nailed his 95 theses to those church doors in Wittenberg, Germany. But by this time, the whole Roman world had been turned upside down by his writings against the selling of indulgences. The Pope was eager to squash Luther's teaching and ex excommunicated him on, in January of 1521. But at the intervention of Fredericks of Saxony, Martin Luther was given one last chance to repent, one last chance to recant of his teaching. So Luther st stood trial before the Emperor of Germany at the Diet of Worms on April 17, 1521. He was given one last chance to renounce his views on sola scriptura, or that salvation is not found in any pope or council, but salvation is found in Christ alone. And as they looked at the emperor, the king, in the face, and he stared down possible death, this is what Luther had to say. If then I am not convinced by proof from holy scripture or cognate reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought in subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will recant anything, for it can neither be safe or honest 
for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. You see, Luther's conscience was bound to the word of God. What God said mattered more to Luther than the approval of princes, the approval of popes, or even more than life itself. Friends, I wonder how you would respond if you were in Luther's shoes. If you were brought before the Dubai courts today and asked to renounce your faith, what would you say? Where would you find confidence, assurance, and hope to remain faithful to Christ? Beloved, the word of Christ is our solid rock on which we stand. And in Romans 8, 31 to 34, Paul gives us three gifts. He gives us three gifts to support our faith and to empower our endurance to remain steadfast until the end. So first, Paul gives us a bold confession. A bold confession. Look again at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So Paul here begins in verse 31 with a question. And this serves like a climactic conclusion to this glorious chapter we know as Romans chapter 8. And we, we know this from this word then or therefore. He's drawing a conclusion. We also know this from this little phrase, these things. Did you notice that in the text? What then shall we say to these things? That's plural. These things is shorthand for all the glorious truths that Paul has said up to this point. And here, at the end of his chapter, he's evoking us to step, out, to step back and think over these things. Think about what he has said to this point. So let's do that. Let's recall what we've learned so far in Romans 8. So let's think about it. Romans 8, verse 1 to 4. Paul tells us that in Christ, we are set free from the guilt of the law and the power of sin. God condemned our sin in Christ so that we might hear those glorious words, no condemnation. In verses 5 to 11, Paul then explains that if we have received the Spirit, this Spirit who rose Christ from the dead, we now have a new mind. He gives us a new heart that is able to obey God's commands. In verse 12 to 17, we are told that we are adopted as true sons and true daughters of God. This Spirit, the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, guarantees our future inheritance that one day we will indeed reign with Christ forever. In verse 18 to 25, Paul then reminds us that our current suffering is not worth comparing to that glory to come. This is the glory of the resurrection, our glorification. And last week we saw in verse 26 to 30 that the Spirit himself intercedes for us. He does this according to the sovereign will of God. And he works all things for our good and for God's glory. And here Paul stands and gives this summary question. What then shall we say to these things? Paul here is not just asking us to consider them or think over them, but to respond in a certain way. Did you notice that in verse 31? He says, what shall we say? You see, the truths of Scripture demand a response. 
This is a call for a confession of faith for every believer. And like a good pastor, Paul here is teaching us the right response. He is catechizing or training us. He's teaching us what to say in light of these things. What is the confession of our faith as God's people? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, he gives this answer in a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. If everything in verse 1 to 30 is true about you, then you are a Christian. And if you are a Christian, then God is for you. And if God is for you, then no one can stand against you. This is a summary of all of Paul's teaching. In fact, we could say that this is a synopsis of the gospel itself. Just think about it. What is the greatest problem that you face in this life? It's not difficulty at work. It's not pain in childbearing. It's not suffering, rejection, loss, or even death. Our greatest problem in this life is God. All of us are born as enemies of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 3, that we are born as children of wrath. In our sin, God is not for us. God is against us. But the good news of the gospel is that God has ended our hostility at the cross. For everyone who trusts in Christ, this glorious confession is yours. God is no longer against you, but God is for you. Beloved, this is our great confession of faith. We have all the treasures of the gospel summarized in this one glorious sentence. If God is for us, who can be against us? But what does it mean that no one can be against us? Is this a promise of victory over our worldly problems? Does it mean that since God is for you, your boss cannot deny you that promotion? Or that you will surely overcome that sickness? Now, some well-meaning Christians will point to passages like this and say, look, God guarantees our victory. He guarantees health, wealth, prosperity in this life. Just think about that passage that Anji read earlier from Psalm 118, verse 6 to 10. The psalmist writes, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Is this a promise for us? Yes, but not according to the old way under the old covenant. Friends, our theology is deeply practical. We need to know how to put the Bible together. How should we rightly handle and apply all of Scripture? You see, under the Old Covenant, God dealt with his people as a nation state. So you belong to God. God was for you if you were a mem member of Israel. And God used Israel to defeat other nation states. These were nation states who rebelled against God and rejected him. And God did promise Israel victory and prosperity and blessing if that's if they continue to walk in his ways. But the problem is that Israel does not obey God. They rejected God. 
In fact, no one can earn God's favor. No one except one. No one except Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to establish the new covenant of his blood. And how does he conquer? He conquers all his enemies, sin, death, and hell, through his victory on the cross. Friends, all the promises of God find their fulfillment in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You need to know that the promises of Psalm 118 and Romans 831 are not personal promises of worldly success. These are promises that are cross-shaped. Jesus does not call us to pick up arms, but to now carry our cross. You see here in verse 31, Paul is talking about our final glorification. The hope we have because Christ has risen from the dead. So is it wrong to pray for deliverance or protection? Well, no. But this is not our ultimate hope. As we've learned these past weeks, the path to glory is through cross-shaped suffering. Friends, this was the way of Christ. This was the way of Paul and the disciples who were killed for their faith. This is the way of our brothers and sisters even now. Listen to some of the testimonies of your brothers and sisters from around the world. This is just from this past year. It's just a few of them. For instance, in Sri Lanka, several men broke up a church service, stole their Bibles, and threatened to kill their leader. In another village, church planters were beaten. In Nigeria, several pastors have been tortured and threatened by Boko Haram. In India, Two families were kicked out of their village. In another village, five masked men came to a pastor's home, shot him in the chest, and slit his throat in front of his family's eyes. Now, friends, we should not be so naive to think that this will never happen to us. You want a promise from Scripture? What does Jesus say? You will be hated by all for my name's sake. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. There are some in this room who will be maligned in the workplace because you won't stop sharing the gospel. There are some in this room who will be made fun of by your friends or disowned by your family because of your faith in Christ. And maybe there might be some in this room who will be dragged into courts, beaten, or even murdered for the sake of Christ. Beloved, the point that Paul is making And the point for us is this. What is your hope? What is your bold confession when you stand before ISIS with a knife held to your neck? What will give you true strength to confess Jesus is Lord even if it costs you your your job, your freedom, your relationships, or even your life? Is it not this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Honestly, just think about it. What is the worst that man can do? Kill you? To live is Christ and to die is gain. Beloved, our greatest enemies in this life might succeed in this life, but they will not get very far. Our God has the final word. As Jesus says in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Beloved, he who is greater 
he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So do not shrink back in fear, but boldly proclaim your allegiance to Christ everywhere you go. Maybe we as a church have been spending too much time in fear, crippled by preoccupation to save our lives, to build our own kingdom, to seek our own name. Friends, God has commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. All nations, including those places where it will cost you your lives. But the, the gates of hell will not stand against the church of Christ. This is because Christ has accomplished the victory when he died on the cross and rose again. And Jesus will receive the reward of his suffering. So we can boldly stand with confidence in anything we face. Any obstacle to your faith, any difficulty, any trial, any fear, you can stand with confidence knowing that if God is for us, who can be against us? He is God. He is the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things, and he surely will keep you to the end. So let us boldly go in confidence as we declare our allegiance to Jesus Christ. So first, Paul gives us a bold confession But second, he gives us a comforting promise. A comforting promise. So in verse 31, Paul teaches us this confession that God is for us in Christ. But what happens when you are weighed down by trials? When you are tempted to forget these glorious truths? How can you really know that God is in you when you are suffering? When you are weighed down in despair? Well, Paul gives us an objective promise to comfort our hearts when we are struggling to endure. So look again at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So Paul here is making an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has given us Christ, the greater, then he will surely give us all things, the lesser. The reason we can stand with unshakable confidence is because God has already given us everything in Christ. Now notice how Paul emphasizes the greatness of God's gift with this contrast in verse 32. So look at verse 32. He says that God did not spare his own son, but God gave him up for us all. God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. Now, why does Paul say it this way? Why does he just not say, you have Christ, he is enough? Well, I think it's to emphasize the cost of this gift, that this is immeasurably precious. This gift is immeasurably precious and costly to Christ. In the Greek text here, Paul uses a word to emphasize God's personal belonging. This is not just any son. It's his own son. This is his only son, his glorious son. So this is deeply personal to God the Father. Now on November 3rd, 2020, Christian author Tim Chalice lost his only son, Nick. And listen to how Tim Chalice described the death of his son. In all the years I've been writing, 
I have never had to type words more difficult, more devastating than this. Yesterday, the Lord called my son to himself. My dear son, my sweet son, my kind son, my godly son, my only son. Yesterday, Aline and I cried and cried and cried until we could cry no more, until there was no tears left to cry. We don't want to do this, but we can do this. This sorrow, grief, and devastation, because we know we don't have to do it in our own strength. We can do it as a son, as a daughter of the father who knows what it is like to lose a son. Friends, if Nick was so precious to Tim Chalice, how much more valuable do you think the Son is to the Father? God the Father and God the Son enjoy perfect communion forever, untainted by sin, untainted by weakness, without limitation, perfect communion from eternity past and forever. And God the Father did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Friends, there's no limit to the infinite worth of Christ. This is because he is God. He is the one who existed from eternity past. He is the one who through all things, whom all things are created and all things hold together. He is the one who's worthy of praise from every corner of the earth. He is the one who hears the praise in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And God willingly and purposefully gave him up for us all. He did not just lose his son. He willingly crushed his son. Here Paul has the cross in mind. Listen to Isaiah 53 verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. God sovereignly, willingly, and purposefully crushed his son under the weight of our iniquity. He did this so that you might be forgiven, friend. Listen to me. There's no suffering, there's no heartache that you have endured that compares to the death of the son. There's nothing that compares to the gift of Jesus Christ who bore unimaginable pain on the cross. But more than that, bore the righteous wrath of God reserved for us. As John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Is there anything of more value than the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ? As those lyrics say from that song, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. 
for my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Friends, this is the only true and lasting comfort in your suffering. When you're way down with despair and you're struggling to endure, you're struggling to forgive that God is for you, when you think that God is really against you, maybe because of that sickness, that broken relationship, that trial, you're tempted to think, is God really for me? He must be against me. He must be displeased with me. But the gift of Christ is this all-surpassing gift of Christ is your comfort. If you have Christ, friends, you have everything. If you have Christ, you have everything. So Paul says, if you have Christ, then will God not also graciously give you all things? Look again in verse uh, 33. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, what does Paul mean here that God will give us, graciously give us all things? What are these all things? Well, he means that if you have Christ, then everything God gives you, everything God gives you that's both good and bad is a gift of his sovereign grace. If you have Christ, then everything God gives you, both good and bad, is a gift of his sovereign grace. And we know this from the context. So there are two places in close proximity that use the same phrase, all things. So, for instance, look back at verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28. Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Or, look ahead, Romans 8, verse 37. Paul says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And what, is, what are these things? What are all these things he's talking about? Well, just look up at verse 35. Tribulation. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So if you have Christ, Paul's saying, then everything he gives you is a gracious gift. Everything he's planned for your life is a gracious gift. Just think about it. Before Christ... You were under God's wrath. So if you received anything good, at the end of the day, you were still destined for God's judgment. But now in Christ, you are under his grace. Friends, there is not one millisecond that God is against you. If you are a Christian, there is not one millisecond when God is against you. Every single second of your life is a gift of grace. Every single one of it. That includes every blessing and every hard providence. Every blessing and every hard providence is a gift from his hand. 
So when you get that shocking news that a loved one had died, or you have that heartache or lonely night, when you have your good desires unfulfilled, whether it's for marriage or children, when you have your job cut or your salary cut in half, friends, every tear you endure, all of it comes as a gift of grace. All of it comes as a gift of grace. That does not mean that we rejoice in that sorrow, but we rejoice in the God who is sovereign over that sorrow. This does not mean that we do not weep. Jesus wept. But it means that you have a deeper, a more lasting comfort in your tears. So when you get a raise, how should you respond? Praise God. And when you hear that your wife has cancer, you say, even in the deepest sorrow, praise God. It's an opportunity to trust the Lord and know his presence and his goodness, even in suffering and loss. And when we respond to suffering, when you respond to suffering with thanksgiving, this makes God look glorious. It makes God look glorious as he really is. It makes God look as a supreme treasure that he really is. That if you have Christ, then you have everything. As John Piper explains, I'll tell you what makes Jesus look beautiful. It's when you smash your car and your little girl goes flying through the windshield and lands dead on the street. And you say through the deepest possible pain, God is enough. He is good. He will take care of us. He will satisfy us. He will get us through this. He is our treasure. Whom do I have in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart and my little girl may fail, but you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This makes God look glorious. Friends, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied, him, satisfied in him in the midst of loss. In the midst of loss. It shows you where your true treasure lies. Your true hope is found. So what should you do if you find yourself despairing under crushing weight of sorrow? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You can rest assured that since God has given us Christ, he is for you for now and eternity. Now, here are three ways to help you remember this great comfort of Christ. Here are th three ways if you are suffering trials. First, read God-exalting books. Read God-exalting books. Some of you need to get off your phone and fill your mind with the hope of glory. You need to fill your mind with heavenly things. Maybe some of you struggle with joy because you spend too much time thinking about things on earth. Read books like Desiring God by John Piper or Knowing God by J.A. Packer. These books will help you remember this infinite treasure we have in Christ. Second, memorize scripture. 
Fill your heart with the promises of God. Promises like this one. Be daring and memorize the entire chapter of Romans 8. And let scripture comfort your heart and console your soul when you're tempted to despair. Third, pray with others. Open, about, open up about your sorrows and pray together with a brother or sister. We're not meant to carry these burdens alone. For all of us are called to help one another get to heaven. So Paul here gives us a bold confession first. And second, he gives a comforting promise. And lastly, he gives us a sure hope. Point number three, a sure hope. So in verse 33 to 39, Paul here is further explaining this central truth that God is for us. And he does this by giving us two illustrations. So we're going to conclude our time this morning by looking at that first example, that God, how God is for us judiciously in verse 33 to 34. And next week, Pastor Samson will look at the inseparable love of Christ in verse 35 to 39. So look again at verse 33. Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, was who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Here, Paul is saying essentially the same thing in two different ways. He's saying the same thing in two different perspectives. The question, who shall bring any charge, is parallel to who is to condemn. Likewise, the statement that God, who is the one who justifies, corresponds with Christ Jesus who intercedes. And all of these verses, verse 33 and 34, are looking to a future day. That verse is in a future tense. Verse 33 is in a future tense. He says, who shall or who will bring any charge against God's elect? As Tom Schreiner explains, the future tense here should be understood as signifying the eschatological judgment. So Paul has that last day judgment in mind, that day when we'll be raised from the dead and stand before the throne of God. So the question for us is how does that last day help us now? How does that last day help us now? Well, it gives us hope both now and in the future. So let's think about how these twin truths serve our joyful endurance. First, Paul points to the hope of our justification. Paul points to the hope of our justification in verse 33. Look again at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Friends, there may be many people who bring a charge against you right now, but it will not stick on that final day. This is true for all of God's people or God's elect. These are the same people that Paul was talking about in verse 28. These are those who God predestined, those whom he called, those whom he justified, and those whom he will glorify. Our confidence is that God is sovereign over salvation from beginning to, get to end. The reason that no charge will stand is because we belong to him. Our salvation is not in our hands, it's God's. God does it all. 
And God alone determines our innocence or our guilt before him. God is the righteous judge, and he alone justifies. Now, this doctrine of justification, this word justify, is talking about that glorious doctrine of justification, this one-time judicial act when God declares us righteous before him. Now, some of you might be thinking, are we not justified the moment we believe? Doesn't that happen at conversion? But you're saying God justifies in the future. Which one is it? Well, we, we are helped by that glorious reality of the already but not yet. So yes, you are justified at the moment of conversion, but you have not yet heard those words, not guilty. You see, all of us will stand before the throne of God. And if you are in Christ, you will hear God's acquittal. You will hear God say, no condemnation, not guilty, righteous before me. So we have been justified through faith. And one day we will stand before the throne and receive all the the glory of that justification. The realization of that justification. So how does the doctrine of justification give us hope now as we look forward to that final day of acquittal? Well, let's answer this by looking at that triad, the flesh, the world, and devil. First, let's look at the flesh. Let's think about the flesh. How does that truth help us now? Well, there are a few things more discouraging in the Christian life than a guilt-written conscience. Our consciences are a gift from God, but all of them are tainted by the fall. So all of us have a gift of the conscience but all of our consciences are tainted by the fall. They must be retrained or reoriented or conformed to Scripture. So what does God say about the flesh? Well, for one thing, Scripture says that our flesh wages war against our souls. Our sinful nature is always seeking to take us captive to sin. But what happens if you are not aware that the flesh is against you? You might feel guilty every time you're tempted with sin. And I know this very well. When I was in seminary, every time I was tempted, not sin, but just tempted, it would lead to feelings of guilt, condemnation, and despair. And as I would go to confess these things to other brothers, they would say, it's temptation to sin. Temptation to sin is not sin. So a misinformed conscience might be guilt-written wrongly. Might be guilt-written wrongly if you do not realize that you have indwelling sin, the flesh waging war against you. Another symptom of a misinformed conscience is that you never feel forgiven or you never feel that you're able to overcome your sin. So you confess your sin to Christ, but you still feel plagued with guilt. You think you need to do something more to earn his favor or forgiveness. And the doctrine of justification is a light from heaven that frees the weary soul. It tells you that your righteousness is outside of you. It's not based on what you have done, what Christ has done for you. It's not based on what you say, or what you think, or how you feel, but what God will say on that final day. Friends, if you are in Christ, if you trusted in Christ, then you are forgiven you will be forgiven, and you will always be forgiven. 
Or what about the world? Think about the last time you or someone you knew was wrongly accused. For instance, how often have you or your spouse said, you always do that? You fill in the blank. Always? Always do that? Ouch. Or maybe you've suffered slander by a coworker, a friend, or a close family member. And where do you find comfort and hope when you are wrongly charged? It hurts. It's difficult. But friends, we must be careful not to elevate the opinion of man above the opinion of God. What matters most is what God says on that final day. So if God is the one who justifies us, then ultimately it does not matter what people say. If God is the one who justifies us, then ultimately it does not matter what people say. So yes, if you've been wrongly charged, you should pursue reconciliation. But if others refuse, guess what? You can rest knowing that your standing is secure. God will vindicate you, and he will right every wrong on that final day. So the question is, what are you hoping in? You're wrestling and struggling, feeling the charge of another, struggling with bitterness or anger. Ask yourself, what are you hoping in? Justice now? Vindication now? Or justification on that final day? The not guilty from God. And if you've done wrong, maybe you're the one who said that, you always say, or you always do, guess what? You also can find rest in Christ, knowing that Christ bore your judgment on the cross. Or what about the devil? Well, Revelation 12.10 tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brothers. He's the one who accuses us day and night before God. He whispers lies. He recalls our sin. He condemns our weary consciences. And he's always accusing us before God. But praise God that ancient snake has been defeated. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. That word, Jesus Christ. He conquered every ruler and every authority and every principality, and he put him, put him to open shame. He did this by triumphing over them at the cross. The cross is our hope. The cross is our glory. This is the word that God speaks to us, not guilty before the court of God. So we see that though someone might charge you, only God can justify you. Well, what about those who condemn? We'll look at verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Just like no one can charge us, no one can condemn if you're in Christ. If you're in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation. This is because Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is qualified to render God's judgment. Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is qualified to render God's 
judgment. Here in verse 34, we have a summary of his finished work. He died on the cross. He rose again. He ascended to the Father as the rightful king. And as king, the one who died for our sins, the one who's been vindicated as the rightful heir and the rightful son, he now has the right to either condemn you or to acquit you. God has given him authority to execute final condemnation or mediation through his blood. So God has given Jesus the right to execute final condemnation or final mediation through his blood. So listen to Acts 10, verse 39. They put Jesus to death by hanging him on the tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commended us to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him who all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him shall receive forgiveness of sins through his name. So friends, Jesus alone can forgive you of your sins or Jesus alone can condemn you. So get the picture, the picture of God's courtroom on that final day. So you have God as judge and God alone can justify you, that's declare you righteous or to declare you guilty. And what is the measure? How does he declare you guilty or innocent? It's what you do with Jesus Christ. What does Jesus say about you? You see, in that courtroom scene, Jesus can either be your prosecutor or your advocate. He's either your prosecutor or your advocate. So the ultimate question for you, friend, is what will you do with Jesus? He alone is qualified to forgive you of your sins. You, your iniquities, your sin, have made a separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden your, his face from you. And if you've not repented from your sins, then as we saw earlier, God is against you. If you remain in your sin, you will receive the wrath and fury of God's punishment forever. Friends, we know that apart from Christ, we all stand condemned. All of us have not honored him as God, but suppress the truth. We would rather worship money or pleasure or entertainment or being liked than worship God. These are idols crafted after our own image. But the good news of the gospel is that God has made a way. He has offered his only son to bear our approach on the cross. He poured out his anger and wrath on Christ. Christ died on the cross. Christ overcame our sin. He conquered sin and death when he rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God. And he is the only one who can pardon you. So friend, what will you say on that final day? What will you offer to justify your wrong? 
You need a mediator to stand before God. And Jesus Christ alone can forgive you of your sins. So repent today and trust in him today. Receive this gift of heaven and receive eternal life. Beloved, the cross of Christ is our only boast in this life. Jesus Christ is our guarantee that no one will stand against us. He brought us to God through his atoning death. He conquered our sin through his resurrection. He reigns as the rightful king, and he always lives to intercede for us. Friends, his intercession will never fail. His intercession is effectual because it's based on his work, his death and resurrection. So for us who are in Christ, there is nothing to fear. We can come to him with all of our sins, all of our burdens, all our requests, knowing that he will help us in our time of need. So go to him with your burdens. Cry out to him. His shoulders are broad. He can carry them. And he will never cast you off. Friends, even if every single person on the planet abandons you, Christ will never abandon you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. As Paul testifies in 2 Timothy 4, verse 14, he says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord, Jesus Christ, stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Friends, this is the hope we have as Christians. He will help you every resolve for good as you continue to endure every trial. We can do this knowing that in Christ, God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you that we have been set free from condemnation, are all in are always and forever his. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to remain faithful to the end, that we will remain firm in our confession of faith, that we be comforted by this glorious promise, and that we will endure with hope, knowing that Christ has conquered. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.